0: Colby is on vacation with his family, and so we pray for them, and uh, this morning, Pastor Clint and his family are in Iceland serving there, so we're thankful for that. This morning, bringing the word is a member of our church, Keith Manry. Keith uh, is—he has been a member for about six to seven months or so, and he is the uh, Air Force chaplain uh, stationed at Arlington National Cemetery, and he's my friend, and we are leading a life group together on Sunday evenings from 4 to 6, which is the best life group, so you should try to come check it out. And we would love you to do for you to do that. Tonight we're having a hospitality night at Keith's house, but Keith is going to be bringing the word. I'm going to pray for Keith, and then he's going to come preach for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Keith. We thank you for his passion for the word of God. I pray that you would uh, anoint his lips. pray that you would help us to listen and hear your voice this morning, not Keith's. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Not long after her birth, Jason and Sarah Farrell learned that their little girl, Elise, had been born with a congenital heart block. While most parents of a young child enjoy things like first steps and first words, first haircuts, many firsts, Jason and Sarah were were spending days and weeks of their lives in the hospital. She had several pacemakers. And at the age of six, little Elise received what doctors and her family were certain was a second lease on life. She had a heart transplant. But this past Thanksgiving, at the age of 11, Elise's little heart began to fail her once again. Her body began to reject that transplant. And on May 8th, after she returned home from school, she collapsed in her driveway and died in the arms of her father. Just over two months ago, I stood with her parents at an open grave outside of Buffalo, New York. I prayed with them and the question hung in the air, why God, why? Many years before, in December 1941, Ralph Johnson, a captain in the United States Army Air Corps was stationed in the Philippines. In the wrong place, at the wrong time, this young man who had volunteered to serve his country was soon captured by the Japanese. His front teeth were knocked out. He was tortured, beaten, and starved. A part of the now infamous Bataan Death March, Captain Johnson was held in captivity for two-and-a-half long years. And when the Japanese learned that the war was soon to be over, they transported many of his fellow POWs back to Japan to serve as slaves. He was put on a ship, the Shinto Maru, that was not marked as a POW ship. And as a result, one of our submarines opened fire on it with torpedoes and sunk that ship. Of the 750 souls aboard that day, all but 82 died. Captain Johnson was one of those who survived. He returned from war, and you would think that his suffering was over, but it was anything but over. For the decades that followed, he would go from one job to another, one relationship to another, he couldn't hold a pen in his hand without shaking violently because the suffering and the trauma that he had experienced had so scarred him, had so damaged him, that he couldn't get past those things. Finally, in his fourth marriage, his wife told him that he needed help. She sent him to the VA and they diagnosed him with PTSD. He finally got the help that he needed was reunited with his wives and children from years past, and this past week was interred at Arlington National Cemetery. Today, another man is suffering, but for altogether different reasons, and with little compassion for those who know his story. 36-year-old Anthony was driving his Ford F-150 on the night of March 24, 2018, when he fell asleep and veered across the solid line and collided with another vehicle a suburban that was driven by michael mercer his passenger in the front seat was lieutenant colonel retired united states air force jimmy kilborn an 82-year-old veteran of the korean and vietnam wars kilborn's daughter vicky mercer's husband was in the back seat along with their 17-year-old kilborn and the driver were both killed on impact and his daughter, Vicky was hospitalized for several months. In fact, her injuries were so severe that it took months before they could even begin to plan any type of funeral services. Only this week at Arlington did we finally inter Lieutenant Colonel Kilborn. Anthony, the young driver of that F-150, now is behind bars. And he's full of regret and sorrow. He wonders to himself, why? Why did I choose to drink that night? Why did I get behind the wheel? Why did my truck have to meet that suburban in that place on that road? Why, God? It's a question that that haunts humanity and is as old as humanity. Why does God allow the suffering of humankind? Why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? Why do some suffer especially those who seem to be good people, while evil people seem to prosper. Why do children die? Why do school shootings occur? Why do young people get diagnosed with cancer? Why do terrorists fly planes into towers or plant bombs at marathons or wear suicide vests? And why are there earthquakes and tsunamis and typhoons that cause so much suffering? The fact is, Most Christians don't know how to answer these questions, and of all the questions that a friend might ask you, this is the one that will probably leave you the most speechless. If you've ever asked these questions or you don't know how to answer them this morning, worry not because you are not alone. You're in good company in pages of scripture and history alike. In scripture alone, Gideon, speaking to an angel, once asked, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Job said, Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. David, in the Psalms, prayed, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Solomon lamented in Ecclesiastes, Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Isaiah declared, truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself. Jeremiah asked, why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior, powerless to save? And Jesus Christ, in his darkest hour on this earth, prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the challenge. The Bible doesn't give us a systematic explanation for the problem of suffering. There are no texts that that package it in a neat and tidy order in which we can easily open and we can discover the answer to the question that haunts us so much. So what are we to do? How are we supposed to respond to this question when someone else asks us? It's an important question. In the words of author Philip Yancey, no other human experience provokes such an urgent response. Your friends want to know the answer to these haunting questions. They want to know why God would allow an Auschwitz. They want to know why God would allow a 9-11 or why God would allow their teenage daughter to die of leukemia. And what are we to do when we are faced with suffering? Turn in your bottles with me this morning. We're gonna start in the Gospel of John chapter nine. It will be our primary text while we will examine some other supporting texts going to read verses 1 through 7. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Would you pray with me for a moment? God, I consider it an incredible privilege to be able to open your word this morning and to declare it to these people. And I recognize, oh Lord, that this is an incredibly difficult and tender subject for some of us. And so I pray now that in the minutes that are to follow, that your Holy Spirit would powerfully surround us and be present in us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight would be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Think with me about the opening verses of this passage from the Gospel of John. What we find immediately as you begin to read this particular narrative is that Jesus is the one that notices the blind man. I love that because it reminds me that God takes the initiative in our lives. It's not the blind man that seeks out Jesus, but rather Jesus that seeks out the blind man. Jesus notices him, and we're not told how Jesus knew he was blind. Obviously, Jesus is God. He knows everything. But perhaps the disciples and Jesus were already aware of this man because he was a bit of a community legend. Or maybe they had been in conversation with him, and they'd ask him about his blindness. But but however they came by this knowledge, as they come across this blind man, the disciples begin to ask questions. They ask Jesus, why? Why was he born blind? Now, here's what's different about their question versus many of our questions of the same nature. They already have a theology of suffering that has been built in their minds. You see, they believed that there is a direct correlation between sin and suffering. And like most Jews of the day, they believed that a particular sin led to a particular instance of suffering. I'll never forget the first time I encountered this way of thinking as a young pastor. There was a couple that had begun attending my church. I think they'd only been there one or two Sundays, if my memory serves me correctly. And I heard that she was in the hospital. I went to visit, and upon visiting, I I learned that she had been diagnosed with cancer and had to undergo some sort of procedure, an emergency procedure she was troubled by that, obviously, but she was also deeply troubled because another pastor in our little town had come to visit and had told her that the reason she had cancer was because she and her boyfriend were living together before marriage. See, that pastor tied her suffering to a direct sin. That's the way the disciples thought. They presupposed a tight connection between the suffering of the blind man and some individual sin. Even suggesting that this blind man may have sinned in the womb before he was born. Something the Jews believed was actually possible. Or that the blind man's parents had sinned, therefore resulting in this punishment by God. But is that a correct way to think? When we face suffering, should we be looking for sin that caused that suffering? Is there a link between sin and suffering? And is there a link between specific sins and specific suffering? Well, let's unpack that for a few moments. Because I think it's critical that as the church of Jesus Christ, we have a good, strong understanding of what causes suffering in the world around us. And, and, and I don't want to suggest to you that what I'm going to say to you in a minute is, is it all exclusive? That, that there are not other reasons? But I would suggest that most suffering falls under three categories. Three categories. The first is that some suffering is the consequence of our individual sin. There are examples of times where you and I suffer because of something that we have done in particular. Think in the Bible with me for a moment. Cain, Cain was exiled and lived a life of isolation from his family and from God because he murdered his brother Abel. David, David's infant son died because of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Israel, Israel was exiled from their homeland, lived away from the place that God had given to them because of their disobedience and their unfaithfulness to God. Or the invalid in John chapter five. After Jesus healed him later, he came upon this man one more time and he said to this man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. There are times when you and I are responsible for, for our own suffering. Like Anthony, who I shared with you about a few moments ago, the guilt of his actions for killing those two men and injuring two others in that automobile accident will live with him, and the suffering that he will experience will live with him for many years. And that suffering is a result of his own sin. It's not fair for you and I to blame God in those moments, is it? It wouldn't be fair for Anthony to sit behind bars and say, God, why did you do that? Well, Anthony chose to sin. And there are times when our suffering is the direct consequence of our sin. Here's the second cause. Some suffering is the consequence of the sin of others. There are times when we suffer because of someone else's sin. Captain Johnson, for instance, whose story I shared with you, suffered at the hands of his captors. He was tortured, he was beaten, he was starved, and then he suffered from PTSD for four decades because of the evils that had been perpetrated against him. There are times in the Bible where people suffer because of the sin of others. Think about Joseph. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Joseph, the favorite son of okay. you come from a family where there was obviously a favorite child, you, you could understand a little bit then about how Joseph's brothers felt. They were jealous, and so they sold him into slavery. And the suffering that Joseph experienced was the result of the sinful attitudes and thoughts of his siblings. There's also stories in a story of uh, in Matthew chapter two, verse sixteen, which is rather very troubling. Do you remember when Herod was seeking out the newborn king, and when he learned that he had been deceived by the magi, he sent word to have all the young boys ages two and under in Bethlehem and in the region killed. Imagine the heartache and the pain and the suffering that Herod's sin caused that night. It's not hard for us to think of examples around us of times when the suffering that we experience is caused by the sin of others. A young boy is born addicted to drugs because of the actions of his mother. A young girl struggles with relationships with men because her father walked out on her family when she was young or a young man wrestles with an addiction to pornography because his father chose to use pornography and leave those magazines around for him to see. Our sin has an impact on the lives of others and many times causes suffering in the lives of others. So sometimes your suffering is the direct consequence of your sin, still other times suffering is the consequence of the sin of others. And yet there's a third reason that I would suggest for suffering. Sometimes suffering is the consequence of sin in general. The curse of sin. The curse of death. If you were to think about the, the story of Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve fell into sin and then God pronounced a curse upon mankind, it is the origin of suffering in our lives. God created this earth and you and I to be good. At the end of creation we're told that he saw it and declared that it was good. And yet as a result of the fall into sin suffering originated. And now we suffer many times because we're sinners. Because of this curse that rests upon us. When children like Elise Farrell die young, we're reminded of that curse of suffering and death. The impact of which we continue to experience. Paul says in Romans 8, the passage that, that Jamie read to you a few moments ago, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He means that even creation is waiting in expectation. What's it waiting for? It's waiting for that day when suffering and heartache will be a thing of the past. And here's the truth. Creation will keep on groaning. Suffering will continue happening until Christ returns. Suffering won't go away until the day that John foresaw in his revelation in chapter 21. Do you remember what he said? He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He continues in verse four, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither there shall be be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away until then we live in a world that is plagued by the effects of sin effects like suffering and we can't escape it so some suffering it's our fault directly we sin we suffer other suffering is the consequence of the sin of others And a lot of the suffering we experience is simply because we live in a broken world awaiting the second coming of Christ and our resurrections. Does that make sense? I hope that if you've had those questions before that you can wrap your mind around that and and that you establish a good theology of suffering, especially before you come to those points of time in your life where you need it the most. But the problem is we can't always pinpoint which of those reasons applies to our suffering, can we? And, and even if we know, even if we understand that our suffering is a part of the general curse of sin and death in, in general, it doesn't answer the question of why God allowed it in our lives, why God didn't prevent it from happening in our lives. We still can't always pinpoint the answers. That was Job and his friend's predicament. Do you remember the story Job lost everything. He lost his children. He lost everything he owned here on this earth. And he literally only had his life and his wife left. His friends came from near and far and they sat with him for seven days in grief to support him. And at the end of those seven days, they opened their mouths and they began to theorize and theologize, if that's a word, what it was that was causing Job's suffering. Why do you suffer, Job? Because you obviously did something wrong. There must be a link between your sin and the things you're going through. Same theology that was present in the disciples that day in John and the text we read. Friends, this morning, I want to suggest to you that the why might not be the right question when we suffer. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, what good does it really ask, what do, good does it do us to ask the question why? If we could go back and we could, we could discover the clues that we missed leading up to 9-11, would it make a difference to the families of the victims that we lost? If we're able to go into the head of Adam Lanza who killed the 27 students at Sandy Hook and figure out why he did it, or the mind of Stephen Paddock who opened fire on the Las Vegas concert taking the lives of 58, would it matter to those whose lives were so violently ended or families that were torn apart? Granted, it might help prevent future crimes from happening, but it does nothing for those who are hurting. Having an answer to why doesn't solve the pain that we feel. And here's the interesting thing I find as I study the New Testament. Virtually every New Testament passage on suffering deflects the emphasis of cause. Let me say that in a different way. Almost without exception, New Testament authors are not interested in the why of suffering. Did you ever consider that? None of them sat around scratching their heads saying, why does suffering exist? I wonder why cancer, why death happens. No, you see, they all believed that this world is enemy territory. They believed that this place is a spoiled planet, ruled by the father of lies, the wizard of woes. And they thought, what else should we expect in a place like this? What else should we expect until that day when Christ comes again victoriously? and remakes us, what else should we expect? Even Jesus himself wasn't interested in the why in our text this morning. Instead, he seemed to be interested in two other things, the purpose of suffering and the response to suffering. Look with me at the text again, and let's think about the purpose question. Pick uh, pick up again in verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me, while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's as if Jesus says to these disciples, Guys, you're asking the wrong question. See, this blindness isn't about anyone's sin. You should be asking, what's the purpose of this blindness? What can God accomplish through this man's suffering? What does the heavenly father want to do through the life of this person? It's not as if there wasn't a cause for this blindness, but Jesus isn't interested in the why. He doesn't use this as an opportunity to teach them about human suffering or about sin and its connection to suffering. He could have rebuked their theology. He doesn't. Instead, he points them to purpose. And Jesus says the purpose here is that the works of God might be displayed in this man. Imagine if you were that blind man. I, I tried to put myself in his shoes this week and I, and I wonder to myself as, as, I'm, as I'm standing there and all I can do is listen in, I hear this teacher who I don't yet know and I hear these other man, men talking about my suffering and I hear Jesus say this, that there's, there's, there's some sort of purpose, that, that God's glory is going to be revealed in my suffering and I wonder to myself, how's that possible? I've lived this life in the dark. How is it possible that God could use me? What the blind man had no way of knowing was that his suffering had a much larger purpose. God planned to use it to display his goodness, his power, his majesty, and his glory. And ultimately, this man's recovery of sight would lead to a spiritual recovery of sight. And after this was all said and done, the blind man was able to look back and see that, but in the midst of suffering, it was much harder to do. How many of you know that it's much harder in the midst of your struggle to look and see God's working and his purposes in your life? I know it's hard for me. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Question That Never Goes Away, wrote this. Faith, I've concluded, means seeing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. Faith, I've concluded, means seeing in advance would only make sense in reverse. Neither the disciples nor the blind man could make sense of the situation in the moment. But Jesus is saying to them, this suffering has purpose. God will be glorified in it. Let me challenge you for a moment. In a congregation this size, I know there are countless situations of suffering represented right here today. Some of you are lonely. You're isolated. And you're surrounded by hundreds of people, even today. But the reality is you feel all alone. And you're hurting. Others of you are suffering because someone you love or you yourself have been diagnosed with a disease. Perhaps cancer. Or another physical ailment. And you don't know what your future has in store right now. Still others have lost someone you love recently. And the grief is intense. Suffering is real for you today. Whatever suffering you're going through, I want to challenge you to consider asking God, what's the purpose in it? Paul in his letter to the church in Rome wrote that we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, not some things, That means even suffering that I bring upon myself, God still has the redeeming power to transform and to bring about his purposes and his glory through. It means even suffering that someone else brings upon you, God still has the power to transform for his good and bring about his purposes through. Even suffering in the world around us that's a part of this broken creation that we currently inhabit, God still has the ability to transform and bring his purposes through. Look with me at the text one more time and let's think about the purpose question. Jesus answered, sorry, let's think about the, the response question. Having said these things, I love this, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Imagine what that sounded like to the blind man. I don't mean to be crude, but imagine the sound of Jesus gathering up some saliva. He's got a, God forgive me, but he's got to like hawk or expectorate. Those are, those are words for spitting. And this blind man standing there, and all he hears, he hears this conversation, and then he hears Jesus gather some saliva and spit. And next thing you know, Jesus has his hands with some mud on this man's face. What must that have been like for the blind man? And then Jesus says to him, okay, let me continue on in the text. I got away from it here. Then Jesus anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus doesn't stop with the purpose. Question. He isn't content with theory. He must respond to suffering. How often are we content just theorizing about suffering? How often do we hear about suffering in the life of someone that we know and, and we think about it? For instance, someone in our church has, is diagnosed with cancer and we think to ourselves, how sad, what a shame that the world is broken by sin and things like cancer are a reality. We might even grapple with the problem of evil when we hear of another school shooting. But how often do we fail and fall short of responding to suffering by actually doing something about it? Purpose and response are inseparable. Purpose must lead us to response. Purpose needs to lead us to response in our own suffering. If you're being tested, lean more deeply into your faith. If you're being disciplined, repent and turn from your sin. If your suffering is being used as a canvas for his glory, give thanks. And if you sense he is using your suffering to prepare you for future glory, then embrace the fiery furnace and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work he desires to accomplish in you. Think about those purposes with me, would you? There are four of them in scripture. One is sometimes suffering tests our faith. It proves our faith. We see this clearly outlined in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's only son, the one through whom God said he would bless the nations, birth a nation, literally, the one that was born to Sarah, who was believed to be barren, is now told, is now said by God to need to be a sacrifice. And Abraham, in obedience, takes his one and only son with open hands up to that mount, prepared to sacrifice him. Thankfully, God provided an alternate sacrifice. But through that act, Abraham's faith was tested. It was proved. Here's the second purpose for suffering. It's sometimes to punish sin. We talked about how sometimes we suffer because of the sins that we commit. We don't like to think about that one, but sometimes our suffering has the purpose of punishing us for our sins. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and following read, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines every son whom he receives. Sometimes suffering is the punishment for our sins. But let me warn you, Christian, before you dare to go to someone else and tell them that they are suffering because of their sins, tread carefully. Remember Job's friends. In my 21 years of ministry, I can't think of very many times that I suggested to someone that God was punishing them through their suffering because of some sin they had conducted. In fact, I can't think of any. I would suggest, and, and maybe I'm wrong here, the Holy Spirit will lead you to do something else. But I would suggest you leave that between the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to convict. Don't go and put your finger in someone else's face and tell them they have cancer because they sinned. Be careful of this one. But it's certainly biblical. God does use suffering to punish us at times. Here's the third purpose. To display God's glory. I love this one. This is the purpose in our text from John. Sometimes the purpose of your suffering is to bring about God's glory. This was the same purpose behind the suffering of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Do you remember their story? Jesus is informed that his friend is ill, and and yet he delays his visit, visit. And when he finally arrives, Lazarus has already died. Mary and and Martha are grieving, and Jesus says to them, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. God delights in using our suffering as a canvas to display his glory. The final purpose I'd suggest is, sometimes God uses our suffering to prepare us for future glory. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote this, so we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Like fire refines gold, God uses suffering to refine us. When we walk through the furnace of affliction, no matter the reason for that furnace, God uses the pain and the heartache that we experience to conform us To the image of Jesus Christ. To transform us. Into his image. Sanctifying us. And preparing us. For our glorification. Here's the beautiful thing. The cause of your suffering. Does not affect. God's ability. To accomplish his purposes. Through your suffering. God is able to use. Every bit of your suffering. No matter the cause. To accomplish his will. So, if you're being tested, lean into him. If you suffer because you're being disciplined, repent of your sin. If your suffering is there because God wants to to use it as a canvas for his glory, give thanks. And if you sense he's using your suffering to prepare you for future glory, then embrace the fiery furnace. And allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that he desires. And if this morning they're suffering in the life of someone else, I want to challenge you to remember that you and I are also to be instruments of God's purpose to bring about God's will in the lives of others. See, when you suffer, you are uniquely equipped by God to minister to the life of someone else who suffers. Your scars are used by God to bring about healing to the wounds of others, but you have to respond. On October third, two thousand one, my wife Erica and I and our two children, Paige and Josiah, welcomed the newest member of our family, Isaac Wesley, into the world. After a couple mandatory days in the hospital, we brought Isaac home, and within the first few days, we knew something was different about Isaac. Isaac slept a lot. We had two other children by this point. We kind of knew the rhythm of what was to take place, and Isaac was difficult to even wake up to feed. My wife nursed him, and I I remember I had a couple weeks off work, and, and whenever she would get ready to nurse him, I would literally have to take his clothes off him and his diaper off him and tickle the bottom of his feet just to get him to wake up so that he could eat. That he'd begin nursing and then he'd fall back asleep again. At his two-week checkup, we raised this concern. And the doctor said to us, some babies sleep a lot, some babies sleep a little. We'll just monitor his weight gain and make sure that he's getting the right nutrition. The night of October 19, 2001, we went to bed as we usually would, and Erica went to take a shower. And I remember laying on my bed with my newborn son on my chest, just basking in the joy of being a new father. Little did I know that that joy would soon turn to horror. Sometime between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, my wife awoke to discover that our son was cold and unresponsive. I called 911, and the dispatcher walked me through, performing CPR. It seemed like an eternity, though now I know it was only a matter of a couple of minutes until paramedics arrived. They arrived, and the sheriff's deputy was there, and the sheriff's deputy took my wife and I and our two young children and put us in a bathroom in the upstairs of our home while the paramedics did their work. When the deputy let us out, they had already left for the hospital, and he put us in the back seat of his police car and rushed us to the hospital. We sat in the lobby, and we prayed fervently. I prayed, God, I need a miracle. My wife needs a miracle. My little boy needs a miracle. But the reality is no miracle was coming in that moment. Soon thereafter we were ushered to a little chapel in the hospital and in that hospital the doctors came and they shared with us the news that there was nothing they could do to save my son Isaac. And after we were finally able to pick ourselves up off the floor I went to another little room and I held my son again. This time for the last time. In the hours, and the days, And the weeks that came, I had a lot of questions. Here's the thing. I already had a well-developed theology of suffering. I could tell you all about sin. I could tell you about the curse of sin and death in this world and and how this creation is is eagerly waiting for its redemption. I could tell you that I believed that one day God would wipe away every tear. I, I could tell you all that but it still didn't answer the question that I had, and that was why God would allow this to happen to us. What was hard for me to see at the time is that God would take the horror and the agony that we experienced and use them to accomplish his purposes in our lives. 18 years later, I can clearly see the purpose in our suffering. I can see how he worked through the pain that we felt to prove and test my faith, making it deeper and stronger than it had ever been before. I can see how he used it as a canvas to display his glory. I can see how he's been working in my life ever since then, preparing me for future glory. And what's more, I can see the importance of responding in obedience to that suffering as God has led us through it. Because he's equipped me to minister to others from my scars. He's enabled me to be a tool in his hands to minister compassion and healing in the lives of those that are hurting. Let me ask you this morning. Are you suffering? Maybe this morning this is a tender subject for you. Because you've recently lost someone you love. Maybe there is physical suffering that is going on in your life. Maybe you're broken in a relationship with a parent or a child or a close friend and the pain is real. Maybe you're suffering today because someone else has hurt you deeply. As hard as you may try to find the answer to why, you may never have the answer that you're looking for. But what you can find is purpose. And what you can find is the strength of God to respond to your suffering. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? God, I thank you that when you saw the suffering of humanity, you saw our sinfulness, you saw our brokenness, and you saw our inability to reach out to you. You saw our spiritual blindness. You didn't respond with good theology. The answering, answer to our suffering was, was not a, a lecture. It was a person. The person of Jesus Christ. The cross is the answer to the suffering we experience. At the cross, we see your heart revealed. At the cross, we see your love on display. At the cross and the empty grave, we find hope to face today and tomorrow, anticipating that day when suffering will be no more. And so I pray this morning that if there are those here who are suffering, they don't know. They've never experienced the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ that today would be the day when they would fall on their faces before you and say, I need you, God. I pray, too, for those who are suffering in this place this morning who are believers, but they've been wrestling with this question coming up without answers, Pray today that they would look for your purpose and they would respond in obedience. Minister, O oh Lord, to us today so that we might be your hands and your feet to a world that is hurting. Pray these things in Jesus' name.